Teina koto kato. No mai hoki mai, no mai hali mai kita wiki fa. Welcome back and welcome to week four of Society and Learning 8003 Critical Pedagogy. Call Tim Gandaho, and this week we're focusing on the key element that should underpin everything we do critical pedagogy. I'm not going to talk too much before the interview this week as I'd love to cut straight to it, as there's so many great examples of how critical pedagogy can change our practice and enable us to challenge dominant ideologies and suppressive practices and also realise how our practice can even be subconsciously reinforcing cultural hegemony and societal norms that restrict many of our learners. Now, if you haven't seen The Matrix, you should definitely watch it. And I'm going to talk about why in a second. Not only has it one of the best end scenes to the soundtrack of Rage Against the Machine, and actually, what I'm thinking about it, Zach De La Rocha, who's the lead singer of Rage Against the Machine, has a lyric in one of his songs. Uh, I think it's Take the Power Back. Anyway, he says... As the teacher stands in front of his class, but the lesson plan he can't recall. The student's eyes don't perceive the lies bouncing off every wall. His composure is well kept, and I guess he fears playing the fool. The complacent students sit and listen to some of the bullshit that he learned at school. You can deconstruct that yourselves, but I mean, that's a really good example of critical pedagogy, or, or highlighting what critical pedagogy is about. Anyway, in the movie The Matrix, the setting is in an artificial construction of oppression that instills complacency in its captives, which is almost everyone, and they plug themselves into this uh, existence, which they don't really understand until they step outside of it. And that's what Neo, the main character, does. There are quite a few films with a similar perspective. Uh, The Truman Show is probably a similar one, and maybe even that recent Netflix series, Altered Carbon. Uh, where you never really die. There's another sort of false construct of reality. Although probably the best example is the internet, where you can get stuck in a bubble which you think is real. However, everyone else is in their own bubble, usually determined by some sort of Google search algorithm. And we really need to understand this, take action, and make a difference. Anyway, in The Matrix, it's an enlightening moment when Neo is coming to grips with the truth, suspending belief of the reality he has accepted as unquestionable. Anyway, we got there in the end. Okay, so overall, we really want to encourage you to keep going, keep putting in the effort. All your posts on Google Plus are demonstrating some really deep thinking, and we know everyone is at maximum capacity, but your sacrifices are really making a difference to the learners you're working with. And when one of them comes up to you in a few years' time and thanks you, that small acknowledgement will dwarf all the challenges you've got at the moment. I just want to touch on the Fukutoki before we go and get stuck into the interview. The person with a narrow vision sees a narrow horizon. The person with a wide vision sees a wide horizon. For me, this means you'll always see what you want to see. And if you've got an idea of what you think exists, you will believe that exists. I'll leave it with that, as it makes perfect sense, and it links really well into this week around critical pedagogy. I hope you enjoy the interview with Louise, and... If you'd like to get in touch with Louise or follow up on any of these other ideas, please let me know and I'll put you in touch with her. Now, Miki. So this week we're looking at critical pedagogy. I've invited Dr. Louise Taylor to talk about some of the things which she's experienced in her career around critical pedagogy and how this has been a, a guiding light, really, in, in much of the work that Louise has done. Now, Louise began her career as a teacher later, managing a youth alternative education facility. And most of her working life has been in the tertiary education sector, working with teachers and educational leaders to support and grow innovation and equity in their setting. Louise has a PhD in teacher professional learning for progressive social change 
and she's resolute about positioning social justice and equity at the centre of her work. She's currently working as a research and educational consultant with contracts in management, research, design thinking and mentoring. Thanks for joining us and offering to share insights on education and particular critical pedagogy. Kiora, Tim, and thank you for having me. (laughs) I'm looking forward to this, um, you know. No, I mean, and it's been um, it's been a while since we we've caught up, but um, I remember first meeting Louise when I was fortunate enough to be selected as a core education research fellow, and Louise was my mentor, and we used to go on these retreats all across the country, up to Auckland and Wellington and Christchurch, and Louise hosted us for several workshops, and I clearly remember um, the main influence on my teaching were these sessions and. Um, this, these sessions have influenced me in the coming years. And it was when Louise introduced us to the ideas of Paula Freire and bell hooks and so on, which gave me a revitalized passion for education. So firstly, Louise, thank you for that. Thanks for revitalizing my perspective on education. <laughs> and also, secondly, thanks so, much. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for um, offering to speak to me and also our amazing participants who are on the course. So as I mentioned earlier on, we're touching on critical pedagogy. The area of critical pedagogy could be an entire paper. Um, but we've only got a week to look into a bit of an introduction around critical pedagogy and what it means to educators in classrooms in Aotearoa on New Zealand. Um, but what I'd really hope um, to happen out of this podcast and out of this week is that many of you guys find this week particularly interesting and decide to follow up on the springboard resources and use this critical pedagogy approach to inform your practice um, and your practice-based research projects next year when you're working on these extended projects as well as through the formative and summative reflective submissions that are part of the practical course 8001 and 8005. To start at the top, really, critical pedagogy has been written about um, in lots of different ways, but what does it actually mean to you? Well, my interest in um, critical pedagogy actually started in the 1990s when I, just like you, Tim, um, came across Freire and um, read Pedagogy of the Oppressed and also Teaching to Transgress by Bell Hooks. And um, both of these books began my shift towards a critical pedagogical approach in my work, just as, as they did for you, really. Um, in, 2000 and, um, in 2000, I began my PhD because I wanted to understand more about um, teaching as a practice of freedom, which is a term that Freire uses and, his, um, and later um, on Hooks as well. Um, and at the time, I'd just begun working um, in the area of teacher professional development, and I had been pretty dissatisfied, I guess, with some of my own experiences, and um, I wanted to offer a different kind of professional development to teachers than I had actually experienced myself. So I guess that was my introduction to um, to critical pedagogy. But um, what does it mean, actually? Well, understanding and practising it has changed everything about how I work with others, um, no matter what the context, really. Um, But it's been more than just changing what I do. It's actually been about changing myself. And I guess this is what is at the core of critical pedagogy. It's about how you see yourself and the world and the learners that you work with. And the shift for me came when I began to understand this and I took on the basic principle of critical pedagogy, which really is that education is not value-free, but rather a political enterprise. And um, because learners do not enjoy the same privilege, um, it's the role of educators to actively work towards equity and social justice in their learning context, which is often um, put at the bottom 
of the priority list. Um, and yet, in critical cri- critical pedagogy, it's at the top of the priority list. And according to critical pedagogues, maintaining a neutral stance um, really just helps to perpetuate the beliefs and practices that create and sustain the inequities that are in, in schools and in learning situations. And that means that some learners are more privileged than others. And that's what it's all about. And that's what I've basically devoted my work to since I first came across um, these readings. So, I mean, effectively, by doing nothing, you're actually reinforcing those privileges, aren't you? You know, if you don't notice Absolutely. them yourself and do, think, do something about it and act on it, you're, you're, you know, it's like hegemony, which is just, um, I remember there's a quote actually in one of these really good, in a really good video from about the students at Aroha College. And they talk about hegemony as something which just sneaks up on you. And I guess without a critical pedagogical approach, you don't recognise these things, do you? Because you're not reflecting actively in, in your Absolutely. Um, role of and you're focused on the content yeah. and you're focused on exciting activities possibly, you know, and even interactive learning. Um, but you are not really focusing on the impact of yourself in that process and what you choose and, and um, to include and exclude in the process of learning. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really grounding theory and I like the point you made around it's more about um, reflecting on yourself yeah. and changing yeah. yourself. Far too often in education, you know, you hear the, the deficit theorizing around the staff room and saying, oh, my class did this or student X said that. And, you know, they're always like that. His older brother was like, you know, those sorts of conversations happen where it's not about what am I doing which can make a difference. It's about Absolutely. the students and what their behaviors yeah. impact from you. So critical pedagogy is something which is hard on yourself. You know, it's, it's um, it's not demoralising, right. but you've got to look really yeah. clearly at yourself. Yeah, your you do. So for me, the first thing that I did was to examine my own teaching and reflect on my values and beliefs and my history. And um, being white and from a Eurocentric background, I had to think about how those perspectives that were just part of me were actually flavouring how I approached teaching and learning. And this was a big wake-up call for me, but it was actually a really fun thing to do. I actually enjoyed it, and it was a deep part of my PhD, was looking at myself and um, and my history and how I had become the teacher I was and how that was impacting on my learners. And some of the questions I asked were, um, you know, who determines what is normal? Because for us, normal is us. But for other people, normal is not what is normal for us. And so that's a big question to start asking, you know, what is my normal for me? And realising that um, what is normal is determined by external forces often that um, predetermine the discourses that we should absorb and take on and believe. And for some people that just does not work and for a lot of students that does not work and they go through the whole education system feeling like they're not normal and not fitting. And then the next big question for me was what counts as knowledge? And as an educator, this is a very important question (laughs) because often um, what counts as knowledge is determined by those who have the power to determine what knowledge should be. And there's this very, very strong relationship between power and knowledge. Um, And once you start unpacking that, um, you know, what you believed can begin to crumble. So you need to be prepared for that. Um, And then the next question then is that how how does knowledge and normalising practices 
um, how do these privilege and marginalise learners? And then the next question, obviously, is what can I do about that in my setting? Um, so critical pedagogy really requires a life change on the part of any educator. Otherwise, um, you may change your methods, um, but you're just doing things under a different, you know, what you've always done under a different guise. Yeah, I mean, that, those questions are so key. I mean, especially looking in, um, a, from, you know, from a New Zealand Aotearoa perspective in understanding in week one, I spoke to Mahinga around the treaty and we talked about how often the treaty is just something which is surface and it might just be that the principles are often talked about. Um, the principles of the treaty that is and it might be that um, one or two people are really good at honoring fertility however the rest of the school just leave it to those two people however if you're asking things um, you know things that like the questions you mentioned around who determines what is normal what is normal to me fertility is about normalizing um, multi-culture to be part of our everyday Mm. lives and Mm. if we don't ask ourselves these questions what is normal? What's normal to me? It's hard for us to normalize other things, which could be normal to other people. But when you bring everyone together in an education context, it is often the Western Eurocentric perspective, which is pushed on everyone, it's, isn't it? Because yeah, it is. traditionally, that's been the sort of the, the epistemology of knowledge, mm. which has supported education. And, and I mean, I know Ferrari writes a lot about how education has been something which is um, been a tool to support um, oppression mm, of people mm. and critical pedagogy. The idea of that is to understand and know that, but actually do something yeah. about it as well. So you have to know that before you can do something about that. Yeah, and that's where I started. Yeah. And I yeah. think that that um, is integral to um, the work of critical pedagogy. And so if a teacher wants to work within this um, ideology, I guess, or this um, um, methodology, then um, pedagogy, then really they should be starting with with that. The debate around what counts as knowledge is particularly um, powerful in New Zealand as well, when we've got so much um, Indigenous knowledge and um, knowledge or Māturanga Māori, um, Te Māori knowledge that is not necessarily measured or valued mm. to any extent outside of Turi or, or Māori performing arts mm. in our other subjects. Mm. Um, so again, being aware of what counts as knowledge is a real key part in uh, classrooms in New Zealand, I think, mm. and a real key thing for a lot of our participants to understand. Who, whose knowledge are we imposing on our learners? Exactly. Uh, who gets to say what that is? And if it is knowledge which um, doesn't necessarily uh, support their cultural beliefs, how can we change it so yeah. that it does? And knowing your gaps. And um, being prepared yeah. to um, learn what is normal for others and what counts as knowledge for others. Yeah. So understand your own position and find your gaps and then be prepared to, um, yeah, learn more and grow more. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like a big step to take. Um, so, how, I mean, how can you start out in this process? I know for me, it was a huge sort of light bulb realization. Go, Oh, this is sort of the, the things I've been thinking about, but I've yeah. not been able to uh, tie anything to it, which is given it like a concrete background. 
But I mean, where can people, you know, how could educators start out and thinking about critical pedagogy? As I said before, you know, start by reflecting on your own um, own history, and that can be a fun, actually, a fun project. I did that um, at the um, NMIT, which is now the Melbourne Polytech, a few years ago with some lecturers there, and we did inter- we created inter- interactive journals, and we used art and um, movement, and we just made it a fun exploration of some of the things that had impacted on our histories. For me, I looked at the term belonging and I looked at instances throughout my life where I felt I had fitted and hadn't fitted and some of the discourses that had influenced me, like you can be anything you want to be, Louise, and um, you know, here I was in middle age and I hadn't been anything I wanted to be and what those things had meant to me and um, how that had made me in turn view the world and the kind of discourses that I um, actually perpetuated with with my teacher learners Um, and even though actually really they um, were we're just a fabrication of somebody's mind, really. And um, the things that we just accepted as normal that weren't. And that was really fun. And there were no tags attached to it. It was just a, um, a deep work, but it was the individual's work. But it actually helped us to begin to see some of the, the knowledge and um, beliefs that had made us who we were. And that's, that's basically can be fun. And that um, also, um, then the next step is to um, start to use some of the principles of critical pedagogy, but not just on their own, because then it just becomes method. So for me, um, the work that I have liked the most and found the most useful from Freire is is his work around um, um, dialogue and taking a a dialogic approach. But again, um, there's discussion and there's this dialogue, and there's um, meaningful um, work that can go on, or it can just be um, lip service, and that's why the personal work needs to go alongside it. But um, in terms of dialogue, one of the um, key things um, that Freire talks about in terms of dialogue, which is not often um, um, listened to, is actually listening. And um, and his um, and I, I looked at this in my um, thesis. Um, and how important that listening is for a critical pedagogue pedagogue in the um, work of dialogue, and how um, I had to learn to listen differently, and um, and to listen not only with my ears, but with my eyes and my heart to understand and feel um, as much as I could the position of my learners. Um, And this meant for me um, that I had to learn to let go of some of my positions and have a disposition more towards understanding and changing. And that's not a hard thing to do. Well, it is a hard thing to do, really. Um, You know, learning to listen with your heart and and being ready to change because of what you hear is actually um, a paradox, I guess. It's easy, but it isn't. Yeah, it's it's a sort of, it's a personal challenge, isn't it? You have to challenge yourself to be able to do it. And if you do find that really, really hard, of course, it's going to be hard. Yeah. Let go of it. Um, yeah. not always listen listen to what people are saying rather than what you want to hear yeah this is the point isn't it you know we always interpret things in certain ways but critical pedagogy is about taking a step back mm. and removing those assumptions you know somehow from someone's mouth to your ears messages get <laughs> sort of dis- distorted from what your brain's telling you that they're saying yeah. um, and that can happen a lot so true and I think generally teachers are very bad listeners. They're very good at questioning, or some are better at questioning than others, even open-ended questioning. 
but not so good at open-ended listening. And I think this um, needs practice. And um, But it makes um, the work towards understanding difference um, you know, I know, possible. I, I, love, I love that concept of open-ended listening. And I know <laughs> from spending quite a lot of time with you, Louise, you, you use some really good um, sentences. And I can really tell when you're... And obviously you listen a lot of the time, but I can really tell when you're sort of trying to dig deeper and, and you say things like, tell me a bit more about that time or tell me what this means to you. And they're mm-hmm. really open listening questions, aren't they? Because you're asking mm-hmm. the person who's um, speaking to you to just open up. And, yeah. You know, you don't interrupt them and you just listen and, you know, tell me a bit more about that. And I think that's a really good way, a really good practice in listening active listening really isn't mm, it mm. and I think there's a um an element of vulnerability there because um you know um depending on who you're working with the shock value can be quite <laughs> especially some students when I worked in alternative education you know um they like to shock you and and so you're opening yourself up if you really want to to hear what students really have to say and there may be some shock value in that and and that puts you in a vulnerable vulnerable position but um nothing's too bad to not work through I don't I don't think well I haven't found any way and most of the time it's exciting and it's heartfelt work and it's it's really worthwhile and you know one of the key uh, concepts of um critical pedagogical work is about crossing borders into the world of other people and becoming um, more familiar with the things that are unfamiliar to you. And that can be a bit scary um, if you're, you know, moving into um, understanding of things that are completely, you know, um, different to your culture or um, your way of being. And yet it's very important. And you can do that slowly and um, you can do it in a, in a friendship kind of way. And um, it doesn't have, you just move at your own pace. But the most important thing is that you're resolute about doing it really and you know the impact is huge I had I did a project with um, one early childhood centre over four years it was a collective storytelling project and um, that's where I learned a lot about ways to um, encourage people to share their stories and um, and it really made a huge difference to the ability of those teachers to be critical thinkers because when they sat down together and understood the different perspectives and different worldviews and different backgrounds of their co-workers, it immediately challenged them to think, oh gosh, what I think might not be right. And that's the beginning of um, critical thinking, really. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Challenging your own ideas is, yeah. is, a, is a big part. And I think for our participants, I know this is a generalisation, but to be moving from a world of um, being a professional or um, studying in an area with such specialism and then go into the education sphere, there's a lot of things which mm. you wouldn't um, have been involved in since you were at school yourself. So yeah. the world, the, it seems like the world and the school are two different places where really mm. we should be attempting to normalise school to be more like real world, um, but yeah. it will take a critical approach to do that. Um, you mentioned earlier on that there are certain concepts associated with critical pedagogy and it's really important not to separate these out and almost turn it into a tick list of, right, I've got that one, I know what that one is, I'm doing this one. It's more of an overall um, ideology. Mm. But one of the the key ones which I've um, mentioned a a bit to our participants is this idea of banking um, and the banking Mm. approach and the banking approach to learning. Um, Can you sort of unpack that one a bit more? Yeah. 
Well, um, uh, coming from professional backgrounds in university, they'll probably be very familiar with the banking approach, which is really um, where the students and the learner is a recipient of somebody else's knowledge. And the whole idea is that they sit there and receive this knowledge from a person who's an expert. And, um, and most of us have experienced that all through our learning um, and, uh, you know, right from when we're little through to, you know, um, university level. It wasn't really until I did my PhD where actually um, I was allowed to, I found I was allowed to think the naughty thoughts that I wasn't allowed to think before and to write what I actually wanted. And even then I got some flack um, back for some of the things I had in my PhD. So, um, you know, it's a big unlearning to, um, and it's actually quite a tricky thing because you have worked a long time and struggled through a lot of um, assignments and knockbacks to reach a position where you actually feel you have a level of expertise and um, and then to feel like you have to let that go can be quite a tricky place to be. But, it, but Freire was really good with this. He realised he had expertise and knowledge, but the difference was that he also realised that other people had expertise and knowledge. And it may not be the same as yours. So neither were to demean the other, but work together and combine that knowledge. And he believed that one of the only ways to do that was through dialogue, because it's through dialogue that you um, began to hear the knowledge and understanding of others. He used to play interesting games in one of his books. He talks about an interesting game where he was working with what he called peasant farmers and they used to think that they knew nothing. And so he did this, he drew in the um, in the sand and he had a um, one side for him and one side for them and he had to state a fact that he thought they would never understand and then he'd get a mark in the earth and then they had to state a fact that they didn't think he would know anything about based on farming and they'd talk away amongst themselves to do that and they ended up with equal marks in the sand you know and he used that in one of his books to explain his belief that everybody has knowledge and expertise and that's the premise from which he was coming so the banking approach working um, against sort of a banking approach is is more of a dialogic learning where everybody comes to the table with knowledge of something and that you create something out of that it's a completely different approach from what we've had mainly through our lives in teaching. And, you know, and I actually think that even in some interactive teaching um, classrooms, there's still an element of the banking approach goes on. You know, if you think about what material is used, um, you know, what's included and excluded from discussions, you know, teachers have a, a lot of power of whose hand they pick for instance, um, who they allow to speak the most and dominate. I mean, women understand this a lot because of contexts where men get more voice than they do. Um, you know, what is silenced for the sake of peace, which is something that was central to my PhD. I silenced a um, heated discussion around biculturalism to keep the peace with my group. And that actually became the um, nexus for my work why I did that and the results of that. And um, and what do we write up after we've had a meeting? You know, what are the things that we um, write up in notes or um, minutes of meetings? You know, how work is graded, no matter how much we think grading is not subjective, it is. And, um, you know, how students are recognised and what sorts of ways they're rewarded. All of those things um, 
we bring power to. And um, and that's why the personal work needs to happen alongside the method, really. Yeah, yeah. So you can you can have an understanding of what it's like. I think the the point you made around how dialogic learning is a is a way to uh, erode this banking approach really links to quite a few of the theories which we talked about with our participants around um, social construct constructivism and the building of knowledge between people. And I love that example you gave of Ferry and the and the farmers. And understanding yeah. that everyone's got um, valid ideas and thoughts. And I think yeah. it's particularly powerful when we think about the teenagers that we work with, especially in, in our schools and in our communities, where there's a really often um, negative association with learning and knowledge and um, negative self-identity around some of these things and saying, I'm dumb, I'm useless, I don't know anything. Because we're always measuring against this system which... Um, we perceive to be the right one however a lot mm. of the strengths that they have we don't go through the process of trying to find them out so i think it's mm. really important to have those conversations that'll probably be a really interesting um game to play with with your students i think you know mm. you tell me something which you think <laughs> i may or may not know and, and explain yeah. it to me. that's a cool idea yeah and of course your response to that is the critical thing you know what do you do after you've done that you know um, how do you show that you value um, value what they've said? I'm currently working with Justin Hickey, um, who lives in Greymouth and works in a very challenging um, school. And he was also um, an e-fellow, a core education e-fellow. And he's doing some amazing work with, um, with some students who've got some real um, high needs and issues. And um, he has found that he has pro had profound change just from listening to his students. So, you know, this whole thing of getting their ideas, listening to them, but really valuing that. And it all started, and this was at the beginning of his eFellows project, by um, some of the behaviour was really um, challenging him. And so he sat down these, these kids and he said, okay, guys, what is going on for you? Now, that's not a hard question, is it? But it's a hard question, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a simple question, but it had um, deep consequences. And because um, Justin was a teacher that loved these kids and had a genuine interest in them, and they knew that, they told him what was going on for him. And they told him that because they never reached the standard in um, national standards, they'd given up. Right, basically. And so he listened to that and he changed what he did. Now, he couldn't change national standards at the time, but he took the emphasis off that in a huge way and changed completely how learning happened in his classroom. And now that's gone on and he's, he's here doing a project with the school now on well-being and the students are co-leading this project with him and it's just so exciting you know and um, he's doing more than token things with them they're actually making adult decisions about the direction of the project and um, and you know what's exciting is every time he gets stuck and we have a talk on the phone I say to him go back to the students and ask them and inevitably every time he does that together they come up with a solution that's critical pedagogy in action. It's it's awesome, you know. It's simple but profound. It's um it's it's a it's a pleasure to work in that kind of context with him. Really, uh, it sounds like an amazing example, and it sounds like there's a real um, fairness in the way that the decisions are made in the classroom, mm. and the value and the input of what the students are saying, but also acting on that and doing something. Yeah. You know, it's easy, like you said, it's easy. 
And I think you're really right in saying that teachers aren't very good at listening. It's easy for us to question, and often that's all we'll do. Yeah. Listening to the responses and actually acting on them is the key part. Mm. Mm. Yeah, amazing. For sure, for sure. And, you know, I know I know how busy teachers are, and there'll be some listening and thinking, oh, I haven't got time for all this. But, you know, one of the other things that I found really, really helped me in my work was this concept, which um, is also not often talked about, of um, Freire's, and that is epistemological curiosity. And I just love how that sounds, epistemological curiosity. Sounds wonderful. And really, it's just about being curious about knowledge and learning, about pedagogy. And I just think if a teacher is curious... You know, when Justin asked those kids, hey, what's going on? I mean, he was desperate to some degree too, but he was curious to really know. And I think if you're really curious, and that's probably why um, I can listen and delve with people when I'm talking with them, because I'm really actually curious to know what's going on. And what I've found um, with, with epistemological curiosity is it's a mindset and it doesn't have to take over the whole day. I think I've found learners are very accommodating when you provide them with just even a little bit of space where they feel like um, they can be epistemologically curious with you and that together you're working on issues and you're playing around with ideas. And one of the, um, one of the key things um, around epistemological curiosity is that you take a distance from an issue. And I found this really helpful if you say to whoever you're working with, in my case, maybe adult learners, um, you know, let's just take a, um, an, I called it a breathing space for a minute, and let's just play around with this idea where all ideas are acceptable. It's a bit like brainstorming, really, I guess, except it's a little bit deeper than just bunging up ideas. So you put it up and you deconstruct it, um, you know, your codification thing, and you scrutinise and you challenge its origins and you ask who privileges from it and, you know, and you you just invite multiple perspectives and sometimes you add something in just to be um, a provocative. And, you know, you don't have to do that all the time, but that little bit just makes all the difference. So then you can get back to the everyday. And um, but what it does is it changes the kind of mindset and the mood in the in the room, and it it alerts the students to the fact that you want to do some stuff with them, work with them, and you want to park your own ideas when you do that. Yeah, I found that really helpful. Yeah, I remember you working through that process with us when we had one of our retreats, and we were talking about our research and some of the challenges that we had in our questions. And it was, you were going through this process of, um, we were explaining to you our project and what some of our challenges had been. And you kept on asking why, you know, why should they do that? What's the point of them doing this? And it was around this, you know, looking at multiple perspectives, really, um, mm. disrupting these dominant viewpoints that we often have. Oh, this is the way it should be. Well, why should it be that way? You know, and it's stepping <laughs> back, like you say, continually asking yourself, why? Why am yeah. I doing this? What's yeah. the point? What's my, what's my belief? But what's led me to this belief as well is, mm. is more of an important question. And having fun while you do it. I like to have fun with what I do. And it takes that, the heaviness of the personal changing going on inside. In fact, that work does go on inside and, um, and often the deepest work inside is not visible on the outside. And so you need the external fun factor going on so that people are um, feeling safe to do the internal work without everyone looking at them. 
I guess. Yeah, yeah. But there's still a lot of power in having a critical friend or someone that you can, who can oh, yes. and you feel safe with and you yeah. trust in saying, you know, checking yourself really, aren't you? Mm, mm, yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's really related to a lot of the work that we're doing around the critical reflection paper and looking at your, the feedback that you've had from mentors and um, your learning area advisors and sort of taking it on the chin. Even if mm. you don't agree with it, you sort of think, where did this feedback come from? Why are they saying these things? What does it actually mean? And um, reflecting on that. So mm. part of one of the assessments, though, is, is that our participants reflect on the feedback that they've had and then the response is the assessment. So it's really okay. kind of an active, critical process. Yeah, it's great. Through your experience of working with um, teachers and adult educators and, and teachers in schools, with the firm understanding of critical pedagogy, what sort of things can happen? What are the outcomes? Hmm. Well, I'm a great believer that small shifts can have huge impacts, profound effects on students, for instance. And um, I've just got a couple of examples I'd like to share with you because I, I think they they just explain this without me talking on. Um, so in 2004, I was involved in a research project in a small northern community, and I was asked to come and um, hear the students and teacher perspectives on a, um, the Kai Koe Koe project, which it was a joint school initiative. And I was talking to one of the students, he was about eight years old, and during the conversation, he said to me, my mum, she, she thinks I learn differently from other kids. And so being the curious person I am, I um, wanted to unpack this a little bit more. So he began to explain how his mind drifts off in the classroom and how he sometimes got in trouble for not paying attention. And so I started asking him, what goes on in your head when your head's not in the classroom? <laughs> Probably a question that no one, well, had ever thought to ask him, and no disrespect to teachers because I've talked to the teachers about this, and we've. Um, but to cut a long story short, um, he began to tell me what goes on his in his head, and he was happy for me to tell his teachers, which I did. And they actually saw a side of him that they hadn't seen before. And as a consequence, they changed many things in their classroom. Um, practices um, to accommodate that kind of child who's gone off somewhere in their head. And they were doing their best before, but this just sort of stopped them in their tracks. And anyway, I returned to the school um, a year or so later and found that this boy was actually in leadership positions in the school, making decisions with the teachers about things that were going on. So a very small act of asking a question and being curious enough to really hear and then you know to the school's credit they listened and took notice and huge changes in the school as a result of that so that that is pretty awesome but most importantly it was awesome for that child because um, something changed for him so that's one one example of a profound impact from a small shift yeah it's a really small shift and I must um, I can imagine that he would have felt a you know, more empowered and understanding that people are actually listening to him. Yeah. Um, they've never asked the right questions, I guess that's what it is, isn't it? Yeah. And that his normal was actually okay. And, um, and yeah, and it, it was, um, and not a lot of things would have changed in his classroom because there's still the everyday 
things you have to get through, but there was a shift in the way his normal was perceived and and managed. And then another example, which is completely different, is um, but also something very small, is one um, one night I was working with a group of 16 teachers in an early childhood centre, and they asked me to come in and help them look at social competence with their with their children. And as I was sitting there, I looked around and I um, observed the number of immigrants, well, who I thought might be immigrants, in the group. So I asked, how many of you were born in New Zealand? And only two of us, including myself, were. And so I said, how much, have, as a team, have you talked about your experiences of growing up outside of New Zealand and your experience of being an immigrant? And they just looked at me blankly, you know, like never. And so I said, well, hang on, let's start here. So we started with some fun things like looking at how you greet people and gestures and what's a no-no in your country and when the great uncle kisses you on the cheek, what you feel about that and all that. We had a bit of fun with it. And then um, and then it developed into a discussion of, um, well, actually, that's all we did that night. And um, normally teachers scoot out the door as soon as I'm finished, but I had trouble getting rid of them actually that night because they were able to you know, share. So my, their homework was for them for the next meeting to prepare. They had to come back and they had to talk about how they knew as a child when they had done the right thing and when they had done the wrong thing and um, like round behaviour. And we had some fun. But, you know, what that did was it um, opened up the conversation for hearing other people's normal and for realising why there was conflict in um, the ways that they worked with children who had social competence challenges. And it wasn't until they did that that they were able to come up with some kind of, um, I guess, some agreed understandings. But even while they had those agreed understandings, and some people may have had to bend their views a little bit, those people still felt that their, their normal had been heard. People don't mind adapting if they feel like they've been respected and they understand the reason for that adaption. So that was another, um, I think, a profound outcome from just a small conversation about how did you know growing up when you were right and wrong and having some laughs with it on the way, you know, very easy and fun. So, um, you know, it's, again, you can see all the concepts of critical pedagogy that I love embedded in that example, you know, the personal journey, the listening with curiosity about something with perhaps no end in mind, open-ended listening, and then deciding afterwards what you're going to do with that information. Not, not beforehand. Yes, sir. Yeah, together. Yeah. So, yeah. So I find the work exciting. and Not that hard. Hard but not that hard is that... Um, again, I certainly think that critical pedagogy is something you need to, to practice. Um, yeah. Obviously, you've been yeah. practicing it for a long time, um, which is why it comes natural. But mm. it's yeah, it's that process of stepping back, and hopefully, through this two-year course, um, our, our participants have got lots of opportunities to practice mm. um, a, a critical perspective on yeah. their practice. And I don't get it right all the time. None of us will. But my attentions are good. <laughs> and I think people understand that. And I'm willing to admit when I don't know. So I've been asked to support um, 
uh, some Maori doing their research, and I just go into that feeling so um, incapable and so aware that my mindset and my experience is white middle class. Um, so I just ask them, well, how do you hear stories? And, you know, when they're asking me about data collection methods, how do you hear stories in your community? Oh, I've, well, we're peeling the potatoes. I said, well, let's do that then, you know. And I find that my ignorance actually, as long as I know I'm ignorant, actually works um, in my favour because people have the freedom to bring their ideas to the table. Yeah, I love that point. That's, that's really good. And one of the things that we've started in um, this course, in the MTEL course, is um, a resource called Tuya Takupu which is kind of a, a new version of a journal club, you know, where you'd get together with people and read a journal and critique it. We've mm-hmm. opened up this online resource called Kupu, but it's not just specifically for a journal, you know, your normal kind of peer-reviewed journal. We're saying that in there you can have any form of knowledge or evidence or understanding which is uh, meaningful to you. So it's about that construction oh. of knowledge. Who who gets to choose what knowledge is? So in there, we may have wiper, we may have a performance, we may have a blog post. There's lots of different ways to understand people's thoughts and ideas. And we mm. don't want to have a, another sort of uh, Eurocentric journal club. We want to have something Academic. to open up yeah. lots of different That's ideas fantastic. around what knowledge is. Yeah, so mm. um, I really think that fits in with a lot of the themes of um, critical mm. pedagogy. I do too. I think it's exciting. So Fury's work is famous all around the world. Um, and as we touched on earlier, it really is quite key in New Zealand um, mm. for lots of different reasons. But what's, what, are, what are the most important themes, to summarise really our discussion so far, what are the most important themes that you think um, stick out? Well, firstly, not a theme, but for me, um, Fury's work is about the heart. Um, which is particularly evident in his later works, Pedagogy of Hope and Pedagogy of the Heart, where he revisits the themes of pedagogy of the oppressed. Um, Without the heart, the work is just method. Um, With the heart, the work can be liberatory. So that's probably my key point at the end. Um, In terms of the concepts you're studying for the course, um, and you touched on this earlier, um, Tim, I think they should be viewed together not as separate, but rather as a part of the whole. And to me, they can all come together in dialogue, which of course includes the open-ended listening. Um, Codification, conscientization, and the generation of themes, for instance, all happen in dialogue with others, where ideas are challenged and new perspectives learned and meaning is made together and individually. And I think that, um, again, I just go back to the key points of critical pedagogy, understanding that education is not equal for all and that as an educator, you have a role to play in this. Examining your own practices to understand more about how your histories and beliefs influence what you think and what you include and exclude, etc. Listen with the intent of learning. Engage in more open dialogue, including time for epistemological curiosity. And then the biggie, change what you do in response to what you've learned. And let leaders, learners lead the process with you. So 
that that's kind of my summary. But um, I I think that you need to always remember that the work of a critical pedagogue pedagogue is to challenge and act upon normalising and oppressive practices. Once you see them, you need to act on them. And it might sound lofty, but it's really quite simple. Learn from each other, change with each other, and teach with a heart. It's it really simple, but complex, as I've said before. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I mean, and this is why, Louise, I've, I've loved working with you over the years, <laughs> because you can, you, you've got such an amazing grasp of all these concepts and just boiling it down to one thing, which you can sort of really take away and go, all right, I'm just going to teach with my heart and I'm going to listen yeah. to people and I'm going to work with people. And that's, that's you practicing critical pedagogy. Mm. And all the other things will happen as long as you've got that chance to step back, to listen, to learn from each other and change, change with each other, um, I think is a really nice way to summarize it. Um, so thanks, Louise, so much for your time. Um, I really appreciate all the work that you've done in supporting educators in New Zealand over the years um, around critical pedagogy. and also um, starting this journey with our participants and looking into critical pedagogy in more depth. Maybe we'll have the opportunity for you to come in and, and speak to us as a bigger group together and some of our participants probably got some really good questions for you as well, which I'm sure you love listening to. That'd be awesome, Kieran. Thank you. <laughs> Love you. are published under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Division 4.0 International The music used in the intro and outro is a track called Siesta by Jazar from the Free Music Archive and is licensed under a Attribution Sharelike 3.0 Unported TA Modi Order Thank you.